Hello, and welcome to the Sounds of Success. My name is Phil Butler. I'm Christina Bowie. We are really excited about this week's episode. We have a fantastic guest. Dr. Richard Reddick is here to talk about the value of mentorship, his own experience with mentorship. He's been doing research on mentorship for more years than I probably wants me to admit, or at least tell on him. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I think that you're really gonna enjoy this interview. Absolutely. Dr. Richard Reddick has quite a lot to say. He has been a mentor. He has been a mentee for his whole life, and he has lots and lots of advice for y'all. For first-year students, I know that your advisors or your professors or your friends are always telling you, you know, find a mentor, go to office hours, and you don't really know where to start. This is the podcast for you. So I think without further ado, let's transition over to the interview we had with Dr. Reddick. Yeah. Awesome. Well, today on the podcast of Sounds of Success, we are super fortunate to have one of my favorite people on the University of Texas campus, Dr. Richard Reddick. He's joining us today to talk about the value of mentorship. I could go on and on about his credentials and his highlights and accolades, but I decided to pick out some of my favorite things about Dr. Reddick. He was recognized by the Texas X's as an outstanding young Texas X. I'm sure he appreciates me putting the young in there. When I was young, <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's been teaching here at UT for 30 13 years now, I believe. Lucky 13. <laughs> yeah, this is the year of lucky things, right? He's the Assistant Dean for Equity and Community Engagement in the College of Education. He's the Assistant Director of the Plan 2 Honors Program in the College of Liberal Arts. But here's my favorite. He is both a Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune champion. Woo-woo. Wow. <laughs> I just want to clarify that the monies won from those episodes are gone. But <laughs> gone. Yeah. <laughs> Wheel of Fortune was a College Week episode, and so... I always tell people we won a $50,000 annuity from the University of Texas. So if you have generous scholarship funds, there's probably like a fraction of a cent that came from that. So you're welcome. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Alex so Trebek. Or Pat Sajak. I don't know who we think for that. <laughs> Both of them is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Merv Griffin. That's probably who we think. Wow. Think. Wow. Now take it back. <laughs> Anyhow, enough about game shows. What we're really trying to get to the bottom of today is mentorship. And uh, I know, Dr. Reddick, a lot of your research has been on the topic of mentorship. So we thought you could probably uh, tell us some things about that. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you got involved in this idea of mentorship, why that's an interesting topic to you, and just maybe some some tidbits that you've learned along the way? Sure, Phil and Christina. It's great to have to be here. And thanks for inviting me. And, you know, it all started when I was a little boy. Seriously, it did. Everything does. <laughs> right. So um, my dad was in the Air Force. And so that meant that every couple of years we moved. And so I went to 12 different schools before I graduated from high school. Uh, I lived in the UK for 10 years. And all that means is that I was constantly moving into new environments. And so being a new kid constantly sucks. It's not a good experience. I don't really recommend it. But you also learn how to be a new kid. And part of being a new kid is figuring out how do I get my foothold in this place? How do I figure out who I'll hang out with? Who are the nice teachers? Who are the jerks, right? And so um, I think that was something that I kind of picked up on as a military kid. Just you, you know, you get drops into a school, you talk funny, you look funny, you got to go find people who can bring you into the fold and that kind of thing. So I suppose it was always operating in the background in some level. And of course, when it came time for college, you know, I'm a first-generation college student. So literally, since I'm 18 years old, my parents were like, good luck with that. I hope it works out. You know, you're smart. You'll figure it out, which is nice <laughs> motivation, but it's not actually, 
It doesn't actually get you, you know, an advising appointment or whatever. So um, when I came to UT, I, I had what a lot of students feel, which is the imposter syndrome and the sense of not fitting in or belonging. Mm-hmm. But probably the first day, even before classes started, I went to a program called the Welcome Program. And Mrs. Brenda Burt was uh, one of the coordinators. And I went to the table where the pizza was, of course. Yeah, back then I was about right. <laughs> yeah, back then I was flacco rich. I could eat like pizza if I wanted to. <laughs> and so I, I went for it. And then she was like, oh, you know, so great to meet you. You know, you should come to our other events. We have more events. I'm like, cool. And so I went to all the events. And lo and behold, that connection with Brenda Burt and uh, the Welcome Program lasted my entire undergraduate career. I worked for orientation. I worked at the Freshman Issues Resource Services Team, first base, in the <laughs> Gebauer building when the dean of students was there. And that's where my office is. Yeah, <laughs> in, in the basement. I was in the basement. Yeah. That's where yeah. we're. That's at. where we're at. <laughs> that's the best spot to be in. Oh my god. Maybe gosh. there. Maybe there's ghosts of rich Reddick past oh out gosh. there that we can connect. Yeah, with. <laughs> yeah. They're they're not ghosts you should listen to at all. I can tell you that. <laughs> But yeah, so I did that all through college. I was an RA. And so I kind of had this sort of, I don't know, role. And I certainly mm-hmm. benefited from it. It was kind of reciprocal. I realized I was getting good guidance. You know, people like Sharon Justice and Jim Vick and Glenn Maloney, you know, kind of shaped my way through the university. Renee and Curtis Polk, those kinds of folks got me through the university. And I also try to do the same thing for students that came after me. And it's so funny, I was talking to Howard Nurkin, who's a Texas X and student body president in the 90s. And we still talk, right? And we still yeah. have a dynamic where he's like, you should do this. Okay, I'll go do it. Hey, so I was in your class 13 years ago, and here we are still chatting it up, right? You so. see, it, it, it never ends. <laughs> uh-huh. So the thing that I realized uh, when I went to graduate school, and actually I should give a little bit of an interstitial. Before that happened, I was teaching in, in Houston. And again, being a teacher at the age of 22 is a terrifying experience. Sure. You only get through it if you have strong mentors. In my school, I had terrific mentors, a woman named Ulysses Alexander. Uh, Mrs. Alexander was so great to me. She just, she was like a mother in a lot of ways. And I was also going through kind of, you know, I was transitioning to being an adult off of campus from having the campus experience to being like, I'm just a one of, you know, thousands of teachers in this district. I don't really have any foothold in the space. Mm-hmm. So that was a transition I had to go through. And then long story short, go to graduate school. I work in student affairs and I'm working in residence life in particular. I have RAs I work with. I have staff members I work with. And again, this idea of helping people get to the next stage of their existence is what mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. And I also knew, need it as well. But for the first time, my last job before I went to grad school, for my doctorate, I was kind of in the space where there were people at the very highest level I could kind of say, I want to be there. But I was in a strata of a bunch of people kind of in the same place. I'm like, well, who do I look to for advice? And I had great mm-hmm. advice when I was at Cal Poly and when I was at Emory. And I was just like, I needed this again. So the question I had for grad school, and I applied to grad school on a whim. I really did. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't really prepared. I kind of did the, we'll see what happens. And I did. Right. And I said, well, I'm interested in this idea of, you know, mentoring, you know, how do you figure out what to do next? Who's shaping your career. And I was doing it in the context of being in the student affairs field. Like mm-hmm. like every higher ed scholar, I wanted to be a dean of students or a vice president of student affairs. <laughs> so I was like, who's going to help me get to that next level? And yeah. How does that work? So they apparently liked that. So I got into grad school. <laughs> and again, I once again had this incredible experience. So Frank Tewitt, who's now at the University of uh, Connecticut, 
was my mentor and he was a he was a peer you know he was older than me but he was another student and he shaped my life in incalculable ways like getting this research project and i ended up working with people like dean whitla and charles willie who was really my academic mentor i wrote three books with dr willie and you know all these great things happened to me so i am in mentoring research what i found that was interesting is typically people who are good mentors or are interested in mentoring in some way either had one of two dichotomous experiences. They either had an amazing mentor or they had terrible mentoring. <laughs> and in my yeah. case, I had amazing mentors. And so the work started evolving and I kind of started realizing I was moving more towards a faculty kind of entity. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, you know, I'm a first-gen college student. I have no idea what faculty members do. You know, <laughs> they teach. I know that. Right. But yeah. And so the great papers. I, well, well yeah. no, the TAs grade the papers. <laughs> the TAs in the right, right? So uh, I, I said, well, let me study what happens to black students when they're being mentored. So I was interested in understanding what faculty did, and in particular, what black faculty did to support black students. So great. This is fantastic. So I go to my advisor, Bridget Long, and she's amazing. And I tell her, I want to do a study about mentoring and I want to study black faculty who mentor black students. She's like, that's great, Rich. So what's your comparison group? What's the control? I'm like, huh? You know, (laughs) because she's an economist. She's a qualitative, I mean, a quantitative researcher. And I'm like, I just want to study that phenomenon. She's like, no, I want you to compare it to something else. And so you walk out of the room just finding out that your dissertation sample has been doubled. So that wasn't a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But what I always say about that is that I have written more on cross-race mentoring that I've written about same-race mentoring. I don't think I found out anything terribly unique about why Black faculty mentor Black students. But why do white faculty do this work? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the thing that comes out is that most times you talk to faculty who do this work, they're a little incredulous. They're like, well, I mentor all students. You know, what are you you talking about? You know, well, no, I've talked to Black students, and they say to me, not only are you a mentor to Black students, you're known for your mentoring of Black students. And as a phenomenologist, people start telling me stories and unpacking it. And most of the time, they've never really thought about this. It's just something they do. And they think about their formative experiences, what it was like when they were growing up or when they were a young professor. And then all of a sudden, they start seeing the pictures themselves. Like, yeah, that's probably why I do it. And the thing I discovered that's kind of interesting is this concept, which I call proximal experiences of being othered. And what that means is that a lot of times when you're mentoring across race or across gender, that's obviously a huge sort of social gap, right? You've got experiences the other person doesn't have. Right. However, if you've had experiences of being marginalized in some way, what typically happens is that people can go back to their, I call it empathy reserves, right? They kind of have a sense like if you're one of the few students of color in my, in my class or at the university, I have a sense that perhaps you need to have a check-in just to see how you're doing. And not how you're doing in my class, but how are you just doing? How is life treating you? And of course, mentoring is not simply helping you, you know, become a better student. It's also being invested in you personally. And so a lot of times those faculty do that. They'll meet with a student and say, you know, how are things going? And the student will like, class is great. I'm learning things. And they're like, okay, that's great. But how are you doing personally? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's when a lot of times the student's like, I am not doing that well. I don't feel like I'm connected here. I feel I'm experiencing racial microaggressions. That stuff comes out then. And so all of these faculty I interview, all the white faculty had something in their lives that kind of connected them to this. Like, I know what it's like to be marginalized. 
Yeah, let me ask you a question about that. So if I'm a student and, you know, a, a professor or a faculty member asks me that question, like, how are you doing outside of the classroom? Is that kind of like the green flag for me to be like, oh, this person could potentially be a good mentor for me because they care about me outside of their class or outside of whatever way that I know them professionally? Yeah. I mean, so Kathy Cram, who's a scholar at Boston University, who really did, I think, the seminal work in mentoring research. She talks about the psychosocial and instrumental. Instrumental is the job, the, the topic you're learning, right? That's what, you know, most people get from a class. We call that sponsorship, right? Or, or coaching. You get that kind of advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when somebody's like, I want you to know this stuff so you can be successful, but I also want you to be a happy. I want you to be successful in all domains of your life. You know, I care about the fact that you're going through a tough time because you broke up with your your person you're dating, or I care that you, your dog is sick. You know, those kinds of things are part of what mean, what it means to be a mentor, right? Yeah. Uh, it's an intimate relationship, you know, and people often like kind of giggle when I say that. And I'm like, well, not intimate in the way you might think, but it's right. intimate in the regard that you are connected to somebody's um, well-being and it's enduring. So a lot of times people who are mentors end up becoming friends, or sure. end up becoming lifelong mentors because you have such an investment in that relationship. So you're right. I mean, and, and like anything else, it's there's a little bit of magic involved, right? You have to mm-hmm. have some kind of connection, some kind of spark that kind of says, we've got a common interest or we've got such different perspectives, maybe it just works. And, and that's why I've always sort of told people, it, it's a lot of like, like sort of, in a lot of ways, dating. You, you have to go find people <laughs> right. who fit your personality and a lot of times it's people who kind of complement what you do. So mm-hmm. in my case, I have a very strong thread of very strong women of color mentoring me who are very organized and who are very direct, which kind of fits me because I'm very disorganized. I'm very indirect. <laughs> and so I kind of, I know when I think about, uh, like I said, Brenda Bird or Bridget Terry Long, those are two women who mentored me very much the same way. Like, mm-hmm. Rich, you've got some good ideas. But you gotta get together, man. You know, you yeah, gotta yeah. got do it. You gotta do it better than this. And that was really helpful for me because I, so I know what works for me, and I, I think that's a common thread. I actually have a very strong uh, sort of thread of women mentors mm-hmm. and women women of color in particular. Uh, but I've also had male mentors. Uh, Dr. Willie, I talked to you about, was my mentor, African American male from Texas. You know, you go to Harvard and you meet another guy who's in your fraternity, who's from Oak Cliff. And you're like, how could this possibly be happening. This is amazing. Checking all the boxes. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much. And so that was uh, great. So, but I, I actually think that as somebody who moved around so much, I also realized I wasn't going to find a lot of mentors who were homophilous. In other words, same race, same gender. I, I mm-hmm. have not had that many black male mentors, mm-hmm. but the ones I've had are a bit amazing. So I've had many more white women, uh, Latinas, uh, African-American women, uh, Asian women. One of my great mentors is uh, Dr. Vivian Louie, who's a professor at uh, at uh, Hunter College in New York. And Vivian has been mentoring me for years and she's just fantastic. You know, yeah. she's everything that I'm not. So <laughs> it helps that we have that connection, I guess. Yeah. One of the things I'm always trying to get more students to do, particularly undergraduates, is engage with faculty members. I find that, you know, a lot of undergraduates are intimidated by faculty members and um, and I get it. You know, I was intimidated by faculty. When I, was I still am. Too. Yeah, a lot of them sometimes can still be very. Um, yeah, <laughs> real talk. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that 
that office hours is one of the few places where you can kind of get started with some of these conversations. Yeah. What what kinds of activities do you think students can engage in to to really get these relationships like off the ground? Yeah, so there's a great uh, scholar named Tony Jack. He's at Harvard. I work with Tony in the summertime, and Tony's got this great book called The Privileged Poor, and it's about basically how do low-income students of color navigate university life? And he kind of talks about two groups. He talks about uh, students who are low-income, blah, 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 but they went to prep schools and kids mm-hmm. went to public schools, right? So mm-hmm. he dichotomizes those two groups. And one thing he talks about is that we don't ever talk about how to use office hours. We just say no, we don't. there's office hours. Yeah, just go. <laughs> go for it. Yeah. We're like, oh, and, you know, bring questions, but they don't know what to ask questions about. Right, Christina. So the thing that's really interesting is that um, he does this experiment and says, what do we do with office hours? Do we actually talk about? And so I started doing that and being explicit. So office hours, if you have a question about what happened in class, if you have a question about, you know, what's coming up, your test, your paper you did, whatever, that's part of office hours. But it's also, I'm enjoying this class. What else should I be reading? Do you Mm -hmm. teach any other classes? Mm -hmm. Could you write a recommendation letter for me? It's also that, and it's part of our jobs as well. Listen, I don't, I don't love the fact that this time of the year, I usually have to write like 50 rec letters. For students, <laughs> yeah. But I love doing it, first of all, because I actually believe in these students. And I think they're great, and I want them to get the internship or the scholarship. But also, it's part of my job, right? Um, and I think sometimes uh, we've kind of set this up. I know it's different for classes that are large. If you have a class of 300 people, you may have a very prescriptive type of office hour appointment. It's 15 sure. minutes. Come with your question. Ask yeah. the TA first. But I've always told students, I said, listen, also remember that most of us work here on multi-year contracts. So if you don't talk to us when we're in class with you, you may want to follow up a following year. You know, you may want to come to see us. And I actually have this kind of rule I suggest to people. I say, each class you're in, each semester, try to establish a relationship that's going to be enduring with at least one of your faculty members. At least one. You know, yeah. you're taking four classes. Maybe uh, Professor A is kind of, uh, she's kind of weird, you know. <laughs> professor B, you never see that part ones. Right. <laughs> but professor C and D are kind of like, they seem kind of open. They seem like they're interested. I'm doing well in the class. But I'll tell you this, and I think I might tell you the story before, Phil. Um, there are examples that I think are really great. So um, many years ago when I, was, uh, when I was the coordinator of the uh, master's program in higher ed, I got a letter of recommendation and it was from a professor in, I don't know, maybe chemistry or something. And the first line of the letter was, you know, this student will never be a strong chemistry candidate. You know, they got to see in my class, blah, blah, blah. But I got to know this young woman and she is the most student centered person you would know. I got to understand what she's interested in. And I just work in the chemistry area. But my gosh, Mm -hmm. if you're trying to get people to come to your program who are going to work with students, she's the one. So (laughs) here's somebody who got a C in the class getting one of the letters. I'm just like getting choked up reading. I'm like, oh, my God, this is an amazing letter. So, you know, we often say, well, the the professor you did well in that class, that's your potential mentor. Not necessarily. It could be somebody who just have a connection to somebody you feel warm to. I had classes at UT where I didn't perform well. But I thought the professor was really great. Uh, And I'll give you an example. And this is not a class I didn't perform well. I actually did well in this class, I think. But uh, about two (laughs) weeks ago, we did a uh, Texas 25. Like we did this thing for incoming potential students with John Daly. Okay. 
So John Daly was my professor when I was an undergraduate student. And uh, he's such a warm, nice person. You enjoy talking to him. He studies communication. Right. It makes he's sense. He's everyone's favorite professor. <laughs> right. But, you know, we were able to pick up like what we left off, you know, years ago and you know, talk about his daughter and what he's up to. We have a favorite author in common. So we were talking about that. So just know that, you know, I think I have a slide I use in my presentations. I say, you know, professors, they get tickets. They're in debt. Uh, they have arguments with their spouses. They get frustrated with their kids. But they're people too, right? And so um, right. I had the same kind of uh, vision till as an undergraduate. I thought that they were some exalted beings that sort of sprinkled wisdom and would walk away in the, in the clouds. <laughs> and I'm like, no. Is that how it is? <laughs> not at now all. Now that you're I on mean, the other side. <laughs> I mean, the great thing, I told you my son turns 13 on Monday. And so I was just saying, I'm going to have a teenager in the house on Monday, advice. And I had a bunch of people saying, oh my God, move out. You know, <laughs> Join the foreign legion. You know, so we had these very human sort of uh, connections. And obviously, those are my peers. We're in the same place in life, more or less. But, you know, part of the experience, I think, that's really challenging in higher education is that you're aspiring to peer to peer identity, right? So you might be, you know, the young muggle coming to Hogwarts, but at some point you're going to be a wizard. So mm-hmm. you got to start thinking that way, right? So right. at some point you've got to take the opportunities to start figuring out, I'm going to talk to that professor and I'm going to find out about what they did or how do they end up doing this job? Because um, office hours, another hint, this is to your point. Uh, Christina, you know, you could easily say, well, how did you get to do what you're doing? You know, how did you end up here? Right. Uh, and most of us have no problem answering that question. Yeah. In fact, you might regret asking the question. Never <laughs> I have to leave. You know, like, no, 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 no. I want to tell you about what happened to me in my sophomore year. Um, and, and in fact, um, I often think that's a big part of our stories because I don't know many faculty members who came out of the womb wanting to be faculty members. Hmm. Uh, most of us had Many of us did other things, had other careers. Uh, many of us sort of stumbled into this because, again, unless you have a parent who's a faculty member, it's not necessarily something you walk around thinking, well, I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a police officer. Yes. I'm going to be a professor. It doesn't really fit. Right? Yeah. Um, that was yeah, something yeah. that I was really interested in when I got to college because I was also first generation, low income, and I got to college and I was like, how did you know that job existed? Like, how did you know you right. wanted to go into marketing or how did you know you wanted to be an accountant or anything? Cause to me, I was like, you got doctor, you got lawyer, you got fireman, you got policeman, you got nurse. Yep. What else is there? And so <laughs> just like that, that takes so much creativity. It takes so much like background knowledge to know of all the opportunities that are available. And so I feel like for me, I had to play catch up with my peers. Like they had all these sure. goals that they've been having and talking about for years. And I was just learning about them, talking to like my mentors or my professors and just like ranting to them. And they're like, well, you could do this and this and this. And I was like, I didn't know that existed. The job yeah. I do right now didn't know it existed. Yeah. Christina, it's so well said because I really think like you should be in sponge mode when you are uh, at university because right. you might have come there knowing you wanted to be, I'm going to be a lawyer. You know, it's written in the stars. It's going <laughs> to happen. Um, but for a lot of people, it's like, I don't, I don't actually want to be a lawyer or I found out something about being a lawyer that doesn't really appeal to me. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, you well, just I interned in a law office and it was t- terrible. <laughs> Wait, that was actually me though. I, I interned yeah. at three law firm offices because I was like, it is written in the stars for me to I, become a lawyer. 
And, and as you said, me. Christina, you know, being a first gen student, I think what it really is about is what we see in media, right? Mm-hmm. So we're dependent on TV shows and movies to sort of move us. Mm-hmm. So you hear this often the time, like I saw this movie when I was a kid. So we see movies where people have those roles. Yeah. We don't see that many movies where there's a professor. I know there's a Johnny Depp movie about being a professor. I saw that. <laughs> um, but there are primetime shows about professors. In fact, there's going to be a Sandra Oh doc, uh, Netflix series about being a professor. Oh, my gosh. Huh. And, of course, I know now. I was like, oh, my gosh. That's going to be lit. That's going to yes. be so much juice. <laughs> You're like, professor? That's not interesting. And of course, when I talk to my friends you know, who don't work in higher ed, they're like, that actually happened? I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know, FERPA. I can't, I can't say your names, but yeah, something like that happened. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of exposure. So when you come to university, even if you have a pre, sort of predetermined path that you want to follow, it's really good to go down these side alleys and kind of find out what else is out there. And, you know, you might have thought, well, the skills I have, I like to write. I like to speak. That means I should be a lawyer. There are a lot of things that require those mm-hmm. skills, right? Um, you know, a lot of times I say in plan two, my job is to convert, uh, pre-law people to be, to go to graduate school. Right? <laughs> in other words, a lot of students want to go pre-law and they start talking about their interest in social justice. And, you know, and I'm like, you could do that in law. Absolutely. But there's actually fields of study where you could actually study that as the main thing you do. Yeah. And they're like, but I get paid doing that. I'm like, you know, maybe not the same you get paid as a lawyer, but it comes and <laughs> We know over time those salaries catch up, um, but you know that's that's really important. I think first gen students in particular, low income students in particular, may not have those experiences and not knowing what a you know systems analyst does. And yeah. I was part of a program in high school, the Texas Alliance for Minority Engineers, that got me really sort of keyed up for an engineering career. Except I hated engineering, mm-hmm. so it was like this is great. I don't want to do any of this stuff, but it's really <laughs> great. But at least I learned some things about networking and finding out who could help you and knowing there's a network and a program in, in place to support. So I, I, it's really funny because I worked at Motorola for the first summer out of high school, and people were just like, why are you here? <laughs> like, this is clearly, you know, you're functional, you're funny, we like you, but this is not probably your field of endeavor. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. it's not. Um, we've spent a lot of time kind of talking about, uh, faculty mentorship relationships. Um, I'm, I kind of wonder what your thoughts are about peer mentorship relationships, um, and how those maybe are a little bit different. Um, and, you know, kind of not necessarily saying that one is better than the other, but just kind of what you might get from a peer mentorship opportunity versus, you know, something where there's a little bit more separation between uh, the mentor and the mentee, uh, you know, particularly for like first year students, they definitely could use uh, some mentorship from upper class students. Yeah. I actually think the, probably the type of mentorship that you'll experience the most at the university will be peer mentorship mm-hmm. or near peer. So it's somebody who's two years ahead of you or a year ahead of you or in your same class or even a class below you, right? Because you'll find, you know, mentoring is defined usually as somebody with more experience helping a person who has less experience. Experience is a very, it's not age dependent, right? Mm-hmm. There sure. could be somebody with lots of experiences who's much younger than you that mm-hmm. could serve in that role and vice versa. So, yeah, we typically think about, and, you know, Phil, you've seen enough of my presentations to know that I probably will show a picture of Yoda and, and Luke. <laughs> I guess now it have the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, right? We keep the <laughs> But, um, you know, you gotta you, keep you, it current. <laughs> right, right. I got to change my slides. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the trope, the archetype. But peer mentoring is actually something that, A, is more accessible. There's mm-hmm. much more peers available. 
B, um, it's probably more relevant, right? If I can talk to you about my experience going to college in the 1990s, you know, um, versus somebody who went to school the same time you're going through school, yeah. same experiences, mm-hmm. you know, went to school during the pandemic, right? Those are kinds of things you can say, this is really helpful to me. And one thing I talked about earlier in in passing, I want to really emphasize this issue of reciprocity. The Mm, idea that as a mentor and a mentee, it's supposed to be a two-way street. If you find yourself in a relationship, and this is social exchange theory, you know, if you go in a relationship and you're always giving, and this is applied, this is true for anything, romantic, friendships, mentoring. If you're always giving and getting nothing back, you lose interest at some point. It's just too much. Yeah. Vice versa, if you're in a relationship where somebody's giving you a lot of stuff and you're not getting anything back, you kind of feel you're, you know, unless you're a user, you kind of feel like, you know, that's kind of, doesn't feel right. It feels weird. It's not cool. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we work to this issue of reciprocity. Like we get together, I feel like you're getting something from me. I'm getting something from you. Even if it's just like you being happy and excited because I'm giving you a reminder of what it's like to be in your first year. Or you're kind of reminding me of what I was doing at that time when I was in school and vice versa. So mm-hmm. I mentioned orientation and being an RA. And of course, in those spaces, I had amazing fo- folks who were like the same year or a year ahead of me who at that time, which is really funny, when you're in college, you know, being 18 and being 19 is a big, big gap, right? Oh, yes. Sure. Being 19 and being 21 is a massive gap, right? And of course, you know, now it's like, oh, yeah, I'm. 48, you know, I'm 45. Oh, yeah, we'll same age, you know. And of course, you realize, <laughs> no, we would have been like so different at that time. So anyway, it's really compressed uh, uh, developmental stage because so many things mm-hmm. happen, right, in that period of time. So um, I think that's super important. And obviously, going through experiences like some people are in a certain major and the sequence is hard to get into. So having somebody who's done that, who can kind of help you through that process and someone to kind of tell you to chill out, right? I think it's the most important thing that peers can <laughs> to do. check you. <laughs> right, right. Like, yo, you're going way too hard with this. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you're going way too hard with this and it's not productive, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's actually not doing good things for you. I don't want to make it sound like you, you shouldn't go hard on a lot of things. But um, one of the things that, you know, we've come to realize is that peers are really good at sort of saying to you, okay, I think it's time to kind of take a break from this. Or I think it's time to talk to somebody because it sounds like, you're really having a tough time with this and maybe it's beyond my, my ability to help. But, um, you know, it's, it's like a third party hear, check on you, right? Like, yeah. It's a lot easier <laughs> to hear from somebody who's your age versus the crusty old professor who's like, go to the CMHC. You know, it's more like, you know, you should do what I did. And I went to the CMHC and I got, you know, some help through a hard situation. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think a lot of the models we use at UT are peer based, you know, um, uh-huh. we really, and of course the, the reciprocity is fantastic because, if you're a peer doing this, then uh, a mentor, you realize, oh my gosh, I have confidence. Like I felt as a first gen, low income, former probationer, as far as in my academic status, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I'm talking to somebody who's a few years beyond be- below me. And that person really is benefiting from what I've known. So I guess I do know some things, right? Mm-hmm. It reinforces your own identity as, as a academic entity. Um, and people like, uh, Laura and don't talk about sense of belonging, uh, and validation. So that happens when you are talking to somebody and it happens to me even to the day when I go and talk to a group of students and, you know, they're first year students and they're 18 and they're just thinking about this thing. And I say, well, do these five things like Dr. Reddick, thank you so much. It actually helps me because I'm like, I know something (laughs) like, Uh I actually know the space. I can unpack some of the hidden stuff that's going on out there. 
and it sort of attenuates my own imposter syndrome that I experience. Sure. Um, yeah. So that's that's a super important part of it is having peers and, and knowing that you're going to be in that role very quickly, and you might actually be in a situation where you're mentoring and being mentored at the same time, right? Yeah. I have a question for you, Dr. Reddick. So sure. um, I work with a team of peer mentors and each of them has anywhere between six to eight mentees. And I always stress to them, you know, we want you to be there for your mentees. We want you to be there for your students and support them. But remember that you're not a therapist, you're a peer mentor. And I know that they struggle with that boundary. And I know that when I was an undergrad and I was mentoring younger students, I really struggled with that too. And, you know, I tell them like pour into yourself as much as you pour into other people, but obviously it's easier said than done. Um, Do you have any advice for older students who are peer mentoring younger students and are just having a hard time drawing those boundaries of playing therapist? Well, Christine, I like what you said, you know, pour into others what you can pour into yourself. Yeah, right? thank that, you. That's a great uh, sort of moniker to use. So a couple things about that. Um, I think one thing is, like you said, knowing when it's, I need to call in help. Like I, I can't, this situation is probably on my expertise, right? Mm-hmm. When somebody is dealing with really severe uh, psychological challenges, you know, that's probably, we all know, like, you know, you need to talk to somebody who knows how to do this professionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of it's just, uh, like you said, it's, it's a spidey sense. It's like, okay, this feels a little uncomfortable out of my wheelhouse. Right. And this doesn't mean that you can't have suggestions or advice for people, but having been an RA and an OA, I'm really good at knowing, okay, this is something that has gone to a next level. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to help, people understand that, you know, this is not a monogamous kind of situation. We actually encourage you to have multiple mentors, like having a constellation of people you access for different issues is super important. So not to feel like there's something wrong with having five people on campus you can access to ask questions because then it becomes, you get different perspectives and you get, right. And one thing I've done, which is really funny, um, I study mentors, right? So when you study mentors, they tell me two things usually. The first thing is like, hey, Rich, uh, I don't want to tell you this, but I actually get more out of this than my mentee does. I'm having way more <laughs> of time than they are. And the other thing is I get to hear the insecurities of a mentor. Like, my gosh, my mentee came to me and said, you know, should I go to grad school on the East Coast or the West Coast? Tell me what I should do. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that, that's a freaky question. Like, oh, I can't be responsible for that, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Setting your life into motion and ruining your life because you chose to go to live in San Francisco instead of Boston. Like, I'm supposed to be responsible for that, right? So what you end up doing is, is, is sort of understanding it's okay to sort of look to other people and say, you know, you're one of many people I talk to, I trust, and I want to ask this question. Mm-hmm. Um it's a lot less stress for the mentor to say, oh, I know you're going to talk to five other people, so let me tell right. you what I think. Yeah. Don't move to Boston. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, Joking, Boston's great. Um, but you know, that's a really important piece of it. I, I think also is just the sense that when you feel that it's not benefiting you in the situation, when you feel drained from the experience, and it doesn't mean that everybody has hard times. So I'm not saying when, you know, when it gets rough, bail out. But I'm saying if you feel repeatedly like, you know, I don't have the reserves to do this kind of work, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then it's time to start talking to your um, to your colleague and say, look, I think what you need is something more than what I'm able to provide. Yeah. Uh, and then you also know what the resources are, right? Mm-hmm. Part of being any kind of helper is knowing the resources, the CMHC, uh, the college advising team. 
you know, knowing the folks you can access to sort of say, you know, I, I think you'll be good for you to talk to these folks. And then following up, not just saying, go talk to somebody else, see you later. But hey, did you have a chance to follow up and talk to those folks? Did it, yeah, was it help? That piece is really important. Yes. Yeah, because we don't want to feel abandoned. We don't want to feel like, oh, sorry. Send them away to somebody else. Do it right. later. But more like, you know, I, I remember a situation when I was much, much younger when I was the RA. I had a student who was coming out of the closet. He was going through that experience. And, you know, obviously there were some things I could certainly help with and some things I learned that I didn't mm-hmm. know what the hell I was doing. Um, but then also things like, like I don't really know. I said, I honestly don't know what to do about that. And here are some resources I can think, think of. Here are some people I know you could talk to. Right. Um, but then I always was interested in, well, how did it go? And, and it, that was one of my favorite sort of experiences I ever had because I'd never been to a gay bookstore before. I'd uh-huh. never been to the time when Dobie Mall had the uh, theater, the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. I'd never been to that. Um, and there I am, like, you know, winning prizes. Like, this was great, you know? <laughs> so that, that's the recipro- reciprocity I'm talking about. So there are things that you definitely can learn and, and do together. And there's some things where it's like, you know, coming out of the closet is not something I haven't personally experienced. You probably should talk to somebody who's done that, you know, but I want right. to know how that conversation went. You know, I don't, I want to know if that person was helpful and I want to know if there's some parts of that that I can relate to, you know, because I might have similar experiences of negotiating identity that might be worth talking about. So, yeah, Yeah. that's that's what it's really about. It's it's really about figuring out what are the proximal experiences that you've had of being marginalized that might be helpful. But then also realizing that if you don't have the experience, that's exactly what the person is talking about. It may be time to pull in somebody who does have that. Mm-hmm. You're right. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, I think we've all learned a little bit more about both getting a mentor and being a mentor. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule, Dr. Eddick. I know you are one of those people on campus who just can't say no when people yeah. ask you to do something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, we're in a pandemic. Learn how to say no, except to our <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> right. But you're right, That's really important. What you just said, Bill, in a very nice way. It's like, yeah, it's important to know what your limits are. And it's important to know I have learned that. The great thing is that, you know, kids are a great sort of reminder of that. They will let me know if dad is doing too it's much. It's time. You got to right? log off. <laughs> uh, I got to put together stuff this weekend for a birthday on Monday. So that's going to be what I'm doing. And, you know, every so often it's easy to get caught up in things. And I, those of you who have partners or dating somebody or those of you who have pets or good friends, those are great sort of reminders like, hey, you know, we haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? And of course, we're, we're all going to be in spaces where I got to really, you know, grind it out this week. I got to work on something really intensely for a while. But if your pet doesn't recognize you, um, if, if your friends are like... <laughs> if your kid doesn't recognize you. <laughs> right. That's a really bad one. That actually reminds me of a situation I heard when I was in grad school. I had a uh, classmate and I asked him, I was like, you know, you're so good at class lecturing in classes. Why don't you be a professor? And he's like, you know, I was talking to one of my professors in grad school. And I knew the professor well. We were at a cookout of some kind. And I asked his son, I was like, what do you think now that your dad has gotten all these accolades? And he's like, well, I like it now because now I'm getting to know who he is. Mm-hmm. And the, the kid was like 18 years old. And he's like, I don't want to ever be like that. And so he's like, I want to spend time being a Cub Scout den leader or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to know that each career path has intensity. Mm-hmm. But it's really important to sort of figure out what your values are, what you care about. and. Right make sure you never fall too far out of that because we all have to 
work with the work-life balance thing. It's, it's part of our lives, but, um, something hopefully that makes you feel restored and positive should be happening to you on a fairly regular basis. Well, that's how I feel about this conversation. I'm ready to get out there and find my next mentee. And I'm going to call you more often because I consider you one of my mentors. (laughs) We're going to jam one day. Get your drums out and I'll get my bass and we'll we'll, we'll make some noise. Let's do it. it. Thanks again so much uh, for taking the time to come chat with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Reddick. It was really, really awesome to meet you. What a fantastic interview. Dr. That was Reddick an is awesome guest. Thank you so much for inviting Dr. Reddick. I'm so glad that he came. One of the first people that came to my mind when we started uh, doing this podcast, I knew I wanted to have him on to talk specifically about mentorship because I've heard him talk about it for years and I knew he would do an awesome job. And he did. I can totally see why you immediately thought of him. I was just, there was so many thoughts going into my head. I had so many questions I wanted to ask him, but I was just like, I should keep these questions for later because he is going strong. (laughs) He's a professor. (laughs) Professors can talk. They really can. They really can. I just had a a meeting with a student today and she was like, yeah, I have this professor. I love this professor so much, but he never stops talking. And I was like, (laughs) wow, you know who you should go to for a mentor? That professor. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When he was talking about, you know, sometimes the mentors get more out of this experience of trying to help people than the mentees get. Uh, I couldn't help but feel seen or called yes. out or whatever, because that's a whole big part of why I do this job. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want students to learn from my mistakes and like I, I just nothing. Nothing is more satisfying to me than like seeing somebody graduate that I met when they were a first year student because you can see how much they've grown over their time Absolutely. on the 40 acres. And uh, it does. It, it hits you in the feels thinking about yes. like, all, the, all the help that, that's out there, you know. And mm-hmm. I know when I was a student, I didn't realize like there were literally people on campus, on campus whose job it was to help me. <laughs> yeah. Know, like, that's it. It's just their job yeah. to help. Um, and I just... I've, I've only been at this job for a few months, and so I've only known these students for a few months. But just since meeting them at orientation until beginning of October, they have grown so much. And it is such a rewarding job. And I am just so glad the doctor read aside that because even when I was in college and I was mentoring younger students in my major, mm-hmm. it brought me so much joy whenever they would ask me questions. I was just like, yes, I will answer all of your questions because it excites me that you have so many questions. So I think that mentorship relationship, it really is a two-way street. And I'm glad he put it like that. I don't know why I never really thought of it like that, but I just totally get that feeling of of wanting to be a mentor, but also enjoying being a mentee as the, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for us that that went to UT, uh, you know, we remember what it was like to like step on campus or to register for your first class and how scary it might have been or how difficult it might have been. And, it, and, it, and in a way for me, it's like, get like he. I feel like there are a few times Dr. Reddick talked about, like, I wish I could talk to my 18 year old self or if I did and mm-hmm. I told him the things that I've done 
uh, he wouldn't believe me. And like, that's kind of how I see the opportunities I get with students. Like I literally can't go back in time and talk to myself, but I can talk to this 18, yes. 19 year old who's in front of me or in my class and help them avoid some of the dumb things that I did when yes. I was a student. Yes. <laughs> that is also why I really appreciate mentors who are able to be vulnerable and transparent with their mentees. I think that vulnerability, telling people, this is where I messed up, this is what was difficult for me, this is what I struggled with, really gives a lot of light to people who are going through that at that time. And mm-hmm. so, it, like, I tell my students all the time, they're like, oh, I got a grade back and it wasn't as I expected. And I'm like, I got a zero on my first college exam because I didn't wake up for it. And I'm not under a bridge, as Nisha from the last episode would say. I didn't end up under a bridge. Nobody died. You turned out okay. Exactly. So, like, it just being vulnerable and being transparent, letting people know your struggles, I think it makes that relationship a lot more deeper and more Mm -hmm. organic as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Vulnerability and intimacy typically aren't words you associate with professional relationships, yet here we are talking about those ideas and and how they're really core to this idea of mentorship. And it really works its best when those aspects are part of um, what you talk about with your mentor or your mentees. Absolutely. Something else Dr. Reddick brought up that I thought was very interesting is that he said, even though he is a black man and he certainly have had black male mentors, many of his mentors were women of color or white women. Mm -hmm. And I think that really goes to show that your mentor doesn't need to be the exact person that you want to aspire to be in terms of identity, in terms of career, in terms of where they are in life. Your mentor should just be somebody who can offer you what you need and be there for you someone who you have a connection with you know like they I think it would be useless for me to seek out a mentor who is an Asian woman specifically I think that narrows the field out way too much and I Mm -hmm. think that I we can have relationships with so many different types of mentors and you don't need to limit yourself to your identity you just need to think about who it is that you connect with the best Right, right. Yeah. Um, He also talked about like students need to have this goal or not need to, but suggest that they have a goal of getting close with one faculty member per semester. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really good um, homework, quote unquote, assignment for students is to like really try to connect with at least one, you know, out, out of your five. That's not too difficult, I hope. <laughs> You'll usually have at least one cool professor in a in a course load of 12 to 15 hours. And the other thing is, too, is just because you're in their class in the fall doesn't mean you can't go meet with them in the spring. Like, oh, they're yes. not just your professor for just that semester. They are still a faculty member during your freshman year, during your senior year, even mm-hmm. after you graduate. You know, you can still kind of yeah. like email uh, an old professor or connect uh, with a faculty member. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Definitely very awesome guest. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for this week. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in to The Sound Success. It's been a great week. My name is Phil Butler. I'm Christina Bowie. Thank you all so much. Have a great week. <laughs>